live from the Las Vegas Convention Center in Las Vegas, Nevada. This is Market Scale at CES, a live podcast digging into the best of the best at one of the largest trade shows in the world, giving a B2B spin to innovation in consumer electronics. With your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. All right, hello everyone, live from Las Vegas, Nevada. It's me, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and boy, is it good to be back on the live cam, on the live mic. You know, I haven't been able to do as much live content recently since uh, back in my reporting days, but it's great to be pumping out some original content that people get to chime in, listen in, and give their feedback, and get to hear some really authentic, honest conversations. So... Uh, You may have guessed it, it's a live podcast, so we're going to be chatting about the best, the latest, and the greatest at market scale and here at CES in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's going to be a fabulous conversation. To start things off, we're actually going to have Taylor Bagley. He's our video producer here at market scale. He's going to jump on the other side of the mic, and we're just going to chat a little bit about our thoughts on the first couple of days here at CES. It's been kind of a crazy, crazy day. Uh, Yesterday, we were interviewing a bunch of people. We were doing some light game content. We were um, getting people behind the mic, in front of the camera. But we were also able to just enjoy the show and get to see some amazing technology. So, Taylor, good to have you behind the mic. How you doing? Yeah, doing well and uh, really excited to be here. This has been a fantastic show. Um, You know, you can't ask for any more than to have an entire... Uh, convention center full of the latest and most amazing technology in the world and uh, this has been awesome yeah it sure has i know when we first walked in we kind of were treated to some of the coolest tech we walked in we saw this giant drone helicopter it was staggering it was pretty staggering and when i say giant i mean it's literally huge it at first i was confused is this just a mock-up for Oh, like this is a drone, but we just boosted it in size so you could, I don't know, feel in awe of it. But it was actually meant to be piloted, meant to have someone, mm-hmm. you know, jump in and out. It was a helicopter, but with like four, like it was a quadcopter, basically. It looked almost like a uh, um, an aqua type vehicle, something yeah. that you would, you know, see underwater in uh um, you know, a sci-fi or a Marvel film. Honestly, it was, it was very, yeah, very Black very Panther. Cool. Very, yeah, very cool. Yeah, and then we got treated again. We were setting up our cameras, decided, hey, let's film, you know, whatever we can get our hands on just to start off, and we got to see the coolest digital signage display I've seen in a long time. That was um, LG's Think with a Q. Uh, I think it was just really a display that you kind of get to pass through mm-hmm. and go to the other side of the hall, but it was such an immersive experience. The micro LED technology they were using, I mean, you couldn't see the pitch mm-hmm. at all. And it was glossy. I mean, I I might go as far as to say it was probably 8K, at least 4K. Mm-hmm. And it was crashing waves. It was space. It was um, jungles and forests. And you step in and you basically have this wall that then curves and then becomes the ceiling. And it really was like giant waves crashing over you. I mean, I I don't know. It was pretty unreal, honestly. Sensory overload. Yeah. Yeah. Sensory overload. What was something that really stood out to you on the first first day of our uh, CES endeavors? Yeah. So, I mean, that was hard to miss, obviously, walking through there. But, um, man, when you get up to that uh, Samsung City uh, exhibit, wow. Yeah. 
Wow. It is, uh, you know, a an entire section here of the convention center that is entirely dedicated to um, Samsung products. Not even their only display, but their biggest one. And yeah. it was a um, huge undertaking, I would imagine, to assemble and to set up the amount of just amazing tech that they had there. The displays, the, the booth um, design was just uh, out of this world. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. No, I mean... When I just look at the booths, some of those largest ones like Nikon, Samsung's, Sony's, it makes me think, what kind of prep went into this? Mm -hmm. Like, I almost wish we had someone on this podcast who could give us some building management, facility management span. That might be something for a later date. But just getting a feel for all of these giant walls, all very sturdy, obviously, and then everything has its own integrated lighting and responsive televisions and booths with interactive buttons. I mean, it was uh, it was just pretty staggering, mm -hmm. and I got to give props to whoever <laughs> was putting that together. I, I can't imagine how long it would take. Yeah, the logistics alone could be, um, I mean, astronomical. Yeah. So. So we've got some cool content coming on the podcast. Um, coming up, we're going to be talking to DJI. Very we're cool. going to be talking to Transitel, to Tactagon Skin, and to Flex Fuel. And when I was deciding what three general topics I wanted to cover on the podcast, I did a lot of sifting. I mean, there are so many emerging technologies at CES this year. It was kind of hard to narrow it down, but I chose drones. Um, reality technology, so that includes VR, AR, but we're exploring actually a different kind of R, and I'll reveal that later. And the last one is the transportation industry and looking at how emerging technology not only helps consumer vehicles, but also potentially freighting operations, um, long over-the-road hauls. That's all a very important part of commerce in general, mm -hmm. transporting food, transporting goods, mm -hmm. and uh, it's definitely one to keep an eye out for, you know, what technology is making big moves. Um, I'm sure you're probably most excited to hear from DJI, considering we were using their Ronin yesterday. Yes, yes. Uh, nothing better than uh, bringing all your film gear up to the booth of the company that uh, created everything. True, <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. All so right. Well, thanks, Taylor. We'll absolutely. bring you back on here in a little bit to do some more show banter. Um you know, we'll be chatting a little bit after our game segment and everything, but good to get some insight from you. And now let's cut over to some great content. Yeah, yeah thanks for having yeah. me. See you soon. So the first piece of content we're going to be showing is not actually a live piece, but I wanted to sort of prep our audience for what kind of drone content have we already produced at market scale. Um, so obviously our first guest is going to be someone from DJI. I'll introduce them here soon. But for our first piece of content, I wanted to jump into something that we've already covered at Vegas. So last time I was in Vegas was at InterDrone, which is the leading drone conference. And I interviewed Julian Hughes of Intelligent Energy. And Intelligent Energy focuses on creating batteries and fueling solutions for drones. So we're going to go ahead and listen to a small snippet from our podcast we did live there at Interdrone, where he tells us a bit about flexible hybrid fueling. So not just uh, fuel that comes from a battery or hydrogen fuel cell, but it's combined. And looking at how that makes for good commercial and consumer batteries, it's going to be a great interview. Let's go ahead and jump right in. So, 
getting that technology and compacting it, making it drone accessible, um, especially because after flipping through your product and getting a better sense of it, it seems like something you really pride yourself in is the flexibility of it, that it can be you know, placed on drones in several different configurations. And of course you want it to be able to be uh, you know, not, not too heavy and easy to access. So what was that process like, getting it down to that small size? Yeah, so we, again, it was the, the consumer electronics need of making a small charger for phones that we were looking at that, right. that did it. Um, and then we have taken our standard technology and we've just changed the uh, materials to lightweight materials. The lightweight materials have allowed us to get the energy density as such that can be flown on drones. So it's light enough to go onto drones. Right. So do you see that as being the future of energy uh, usage within drones? Not a complete replacement of the battery, but sort of a hybrid for you know, using the battery when necessary? Uh, I do, because there are peaks and lows on, on the power required to fly a drone, definitely. Yeah. And I think the most, well, we know the most efficient way is to hybridize it with a small battery. Definitely. So now I want to dive into a bit of the applications that can be possible with something like a hybrid battery in place. Um, compared to just a regular lithium-ion battery on a drone, how can this kind of technology, both a combination of hydrogen fuel cell and peaking with that battery, help propel drone applications to the next level? Well, <coughs> I think over the last three or so years, I think almost every day there's a new application found where drones can be used. <laughs> right. Um, you know, whether I mean, it's... You're, you're, you're not even exaggerating. It really feels like every day it's right. like, wow, you can use it in here, you can use it in here. I mean, we just actually had someone on our podcast talk about the potential uses for drones in the retail space and just using uh, drones for geomapping to predict demographics and choose your best location for a retail business. I mean, yeah, it's, it is incredible how much, how much yeah. change and innovation there is. So, so I think... With the advent of longer flight times, I think there are going to be even more applications right. that we don't even know about yet um, that people haven't necessarily thought of. Um, and one, just as, a, as an example, drones are now, or we've had requests to have drones used uh, for indoor use. To your point, in the retail space, if you look at DCs and warehouses for inventory inspection, hmm. um, with a battery with you know the, the limited flight time you get, it's kind of inefficient, but with a long flight time, you can get drones going up and down aisles inspecting inventory and doing yard management that you can't necessarily do with batteries today, just as an example. Definitely. And then how do you communicate the benefits of technology like this to the end user? Yeah, so typically we do that by comparing it to a battery. Firstly, um, batteries store energy. And once that energy is depleted, you then have to put that energy back in by way of charging for a period of time. Right. Fuel cells are different in that they produce energy at source. They don't store any energy. So as long as you've got hydrogen as your fuel, you can continuously um, generate power. So that's one benefit that you don't have to recharge the battery. It takes around three or, or so, or three or less minutes to fill the cylinder. So if you compare that three or four hours of charging a battery, that's one plus. Um, obviously, uh, duration, the longer flight time, the bigger the fuel tank, the longer flight time you're going to get. And, and yes, and, and we can dive into costs for, for a second, but the capital cost of a fuel cell, it is more than a battery. However, total cost of ownership is actually lower cost. You know, I was talking to someone yesterday. They said for a half-day mission, which is around three or so hours, they're spending $10,000 on batteries. 
What about on the consumer end? Do you see this technology making its way into the consumer market? Again, that's a good question, and we've looked at that. Um, firstly, in the consumer space, there isn't too much of a need to fly your drone for an hour or an hour and a half. True. You're going to get tired, and you know why would you need that, that flight time, for one? Mm -hmm. Secondly, in the consumer space, the drones as a product need to look more aesthetically pleasing. So right now, not so applicable. However, there, there are other methods of generating hydrogen. You can use chemical hydrides, and basically that's um, a, a chemistry that will, will produce hydrogen at source. It's a lot lighter than a, um, a cylinder. It's more expensive, and it's something for the future. So, and, and also that will allow you to have a more aesthetically pleasing design. So maybe that would be the avenue in the future, but that's not something that we're looking at yet. All right, so again, that was Julian Hughes with Intelligent Energy. We chatted back at Interdrone, and yeah, just wanted to give you all a taste of what kind of technology is already affecting the drone space. But now, more importantly, I want to introduce our first live guest for the podcast. We're going to be chatting with Patrick Santucci. He's the product PR manager for DJI. He's our first guest today, and we already spoke on Wednesday, which was yesterday. Uh, we were on the floor, and he gave us a look at the latest and greatest technology that DJI has to offer. So that's what we're going to start with, a little recap of that. Patrick, great to have you on the podcast. And didn't mention it before, but you can be right up to the mic yeah, so you. everyone can hear your <laughs> glorious voice. <laughs> well, thank you for, for inviting me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's good to have you here on the podcast. So um, quick recap, what has your Thursday been so, been like so far? I know it's kind of just started. So is yeah. this the, the first highlight of the day, hopefully? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a very hectic show for us. Yeah. No, we didn't really announce anything. Uh, tremendously new, more or less accessories for an existing product. Um, you know, it, we uh, do attract a lot of people to our booth, so it's been very for helpful, sure. But, uh, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, seeing the the big lit up DJI is definitely mm. definitely not pushing anyone away. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh -huh. definitely not, definitely I love not. it. Um, so let's recap a bit of that technology that y'all showcased this year. You said mm -hmm. it's not particularly new, but mm -hmm. was just bringing this back to the attention of the consumer and showcasing some tech that kind of works in conjunction with some of your drones and um, really just showcases a mix of not only your camera technology, but your mm -hmm. gimbal technology as well. Absolutely. So yeah, give our audience a, a little recap. Yeah, so at this show, we introduced the DJI Smart Controller. And what that is, it's a controller meant for the Mavic 2 systems using OcuSync 2.0. Um, and what it is, it's, a, it's an ultra-bright screen that's built into the remote controller. And the goal of it is to kind of alleviate the need for using your smartphone um, for flying. You know, okay. if, if you're someone that flies a lot, use your smartphone, you get done flying, your f battery's dead, it you know, takes your, uh, your phone out of, out of your pocket and can't answer anything. So um, this kind of alleviates that, um, that's th that issue. And, and what we found is a lot of people were look like buy a dedicated tablet mm -hmm. when they fly a lot. Um, so this is an ultra bright screen. It's twice the brightness of a smartphone or a tablet. It's built in. You don't have to do a mounting system. It's not wired. Um, so it actually, it it's a really cool accessory that, that adds to the ecosystem of the Mavic 2 already. I love that. And I could see that having some pretty substantial applications in a lot of B2B markets. I mean, I just mm -hmm. think... I think, okay, we've got professional architects that are doing some surveying. Mm -hmm. They probably don't want to have to download an app and use an iPad, even though that's probably what they were doing. Yeah. Having a 
hardware solution, mm-hmm. something that is made to connect with that drone, is probably going to be very popular. Have you already seen a lot of uh, success in not only consumer but commercial markets too? Um, so right now it's on hold okay, uh, cool. for sale in the United States. So, so no success stories okay. just, <laughs> just, just yet. We'll have to check back next year. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, for the, for the B2B, absolutely. Um, uh, eventually we're going to uh, be able to download the DJI Pilot app, which, which operates our enterprise products. Um, pr- primarily the brand new Mavic 2 Enterprise series. So um, if you're not familiar with those guys, we announced l- late last year two new Mavic 2s. Um, there's the Mavic 2 Enterprise standard. It's got a six-time zoom. It's the same body as the regular Mavic 2, um, but it has this USB-C port on the top. And what you can do is you can add one of three accessories on, on it. Okay. Uh, so we have a spotlight system, we have a microphone system, and we have a beacon system if you have uh, permission to fly at night. Um, okay. So that's the Mavic 2 Enterprise. And then just recently, in the last few weeks, we released the Mavic 2 Enterprise Dual, which is really cool. Um, so it has still has this, the same six-time zoom, same body, same accessories that can mount to the top. Um, but this guy actually has a built-in du- uh, thermal camera made by Fleur. Okay. Uh, so it's uh, all on a three-axis gimbal, pick up heat signatures, and this is really meant for police departments, fire departments, uh, search and rescue, these kind of operations, uh, people look that need to pick up heat signatures uh, to help them save lives. Love it. A big thing. No, I mean, yeah, that's uh, definitely one of the most potent applications for drones in the more commercial B2B space. Yeah. Um, so I know you also, I'm not sure if this was a product that was premiered, but it was definitely showcased uh, at CES this year, and it's a very small camera. Go yeah. ahead and describe that for our audience, because when you showed it to me, uh, it reminded me of like a flip camera, camera, right? Which is probably a lot of comparisons you get, yeah. but it's nowhere near uh, a flip camera <laughs> for the better. So w- tell our audience a bit about um, this new product and yeah. why it's so exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in late November, we actually announced this product in the Good Morning American Studios in New York City. Nice. Uh, it's called Osmo Pocket. Uh, essentially, you know, most people know us for, as a drone company, uh, but um, on most of our drones is a high-quality camera, and that camera is supported by a high-quality gimbal. Yes. Uh, so if you know a decent amount of, about DJI, it's, um, you know, we make really amazing gimbals, and we make really amazing cameras. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why not make it a ground solution, And which is something we've been doing more and more. Um, so we just recently launched a professional line, and now we, we keep adding to this handheld um, uh, solution. Uh, so Osmo Pocket is on a three-axis gimbal. It's a one over two point three-inch sensor. Uh, it shoots four K sixty P. It shoots twelve megapixel stills, and it's got a host of features that are built in. Everything from uh, active track to face track to panorama to time lapse. All that is built into this little uh, gimbal. Uh, it's about the size of a candy bar. Fits pretty much anywhere in your pocket. Love it. Um, yeah, uh, and you can use it with your phone, or you can use it as a standalone product. Interesting. One-inch touchscreen that you can access majority of the settings. Okay, and it shoots in 4K, right? Yeah, 4K okay. 60p. So that is pretty incredible to me. Um, what were some of the challenges of condensing <laughs> that technology down to something so compact, but was mm. still able to shoot in such high definition? You know, g- Basically, it's just like a, a small gimbal, small camera, but it all maintains that same quality. So what <laughs> were some of those challenges of condensing all that tech? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's a lot to pack into yeah. such a small little thing. Um, but we've been doing it for some time now. So I don't think it was uh, too much of a challenge okay. because it's actually very similar to what you find in the Mavic Air, which came out um, actually ja- late January last year. Uh, so this is something we've been working on for some time. So I, I don't think it was too much of a challenge. Okay. Now it's more or less what kind of features can you put into it right. um, and how do you access these features from like with just a few swipes of your finger or taps of your finger. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can see this being very popular in consumer markets. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some commercial applications for some pocket technology like this? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it probably makes 
capturing video on the fly much easier, but are there any more specific applications um, within any B2B markets that stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, well, if you consider some tech journalists, um, many of my friends who are tech journalists here uh, actually have it with them right now. Okay. Um, so capturing content on the go, uh, plugging right into your system, not having to carry around, uh, you know, heavy rig, um, it's just a, a really perfect use application for it in that end. Yeah, I mean, I know when we were lugging around these uh, these tripods at the show, yeah. it was definitely a strain on the back. So Absolutely, yeah. yeah, I could see I could see that pocket camera being definitely a little more accessible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and has it seen a lot of success at the show here? Yes, um, it looks like every one out of four people coming into our booth booth has their own purchased pocket. Oh, so. already? Yes, great. Mm -hmm. So they're probably comparing me like, hey, yeah, let's yeah, join the absolutely. club. Yeah, I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So one more thing I wanted to chat with you about, kind of shifting the conversation, is mm -hmm. I want to get your take on a big um, piece of regulation in the drone industry as a whole. So in yeah. 2018, um, they passed the 2018 FAA Reauthorization Act, yeah. and it changed a lot of the regulation for the drone industry, mostly for the better. Uh, yeah. I think there are a lot of supporters of what the bill passed. And so I just wanted to get some context from within the industry of how people who either manufacture, operate, pilot, mm -hmm. whatever, a drone, mm -hmm. how they reacted to this change. So the first part of the bill that really stood out to me was that Congress is now deciding to fund the FAA for five years. Mm -hmm. And so the winners of this would be the FAA and the losers would be supporters of FAA privatization, which I know was a big talking point over the last few years. Like, should drone regulation stick with the government with FAA or should it be privatized? Yeah. And, you know, should companies manage regulation and assign out like, oh, yeah, you are cleared to fly, whatever. Um, yeah. What was that conversation like within the industry? What did you detect from people as they were chatting about? Should it be government regulated? Should it be privatized? Thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, most talk was was very much on the government side. Yeah. Uh, when you go into the private sector, it opens up, you know, some different issues. Mm -hmm. um, like like what? Um, so uh, being able to control specific things or forcing customers to follow a specific path. Uh huh. Um, was something that we were trying to avoid. Okay. Once you go down the government regulation side, uh, it's much more of an open conversation between all the companies, not just a few larger private companies. Um, so on our end, you know, what we were hearing is that the government side, you know, at least we can all contribute and work together to find a solution as an sure. industry as a whole. Um, so that's why we were kind of leaning on that that front. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like a lot of people were pretty happy yeah. with that turn of events. Um, I, I could see it, you know, definitely. Definitely some companies might think that they have um, a, a better idea of how to regulate yeah. um, what consumers or commercial um, users need mm -hmm. with their drones. Uh, but now that it is leaking more into, okay, the government is going to continue to regulate this, at least for yeah. the foreseeable future, um, how are companies and the government sort of working together to find those best solutions? Are there consortiums you know are there chats about that very official ones yeah 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 i mean uh, as a company as dji you know we have a whole team in dc that that works on these types of things uh opening conversations with other industry leaders opening conversations with government officials uh and trying to find a solution for this because it's such new technology mm -hmm. and there's always a, a period of people being intimidated by it Definitely. um so working together with the government to try and find a solution that is both advantageous to commercial pilots and hobbyists is is our goal okay always what would you say is like one potent piece of regulation or just part of it that was um, just
just really a, a staple of the conversation. You know, like what what aspect of the regulation was maybe something that was most talked about? Um, the knowledge quiz was something that we talked about on our end a lot. Okay, yeah, um, d- describe that for our audience a bit. So the new rule re- uh, requires a hobbyist to take some sort of knowledge quiz. Um, as a company ourselves, we actually implemented that into our app itself. So when you go to launch your drone, we actually prompt you to take an eight-question basic knowledge quiz, okay. uh, which which we, we are in favor for because, you know, if you're a hobbyist and you just get a drone, um, oftentimes people open the package, they charge it, and they, you know. They, they just yeah, take to the air. Take to the air. Um, and it's it can be difficult um, to do that because it's really important to take time to learn about the rules, regulations as a hobbyist at, and of course, as a commercial, mm-hmm. commercial pilot, um, rather than just, you know, going jump, jumping right at it. Um, so this knowledge quiz kind of just reiterates a lot of the real basic points about flying a drone in in the United States. I love that. I mean, basic knowledge feels pretty basic, right? I mean, yeah, Yeah. something you should probably expect from anyone flying a drone. So, so now you're seeing that basic knowledge quiz become more of a government regulated standard. Yeah. I mean, I can't say for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm not on the legal team that works on the DC. True. Um, but what we what we do on our end is is really again reiterate those those really basic points. So I'm assuming the government at some point is going to find some sort of standard uh, questioning for for uh, pilots. Yeah, uh, for sure. And how that's implemented into other drone manufacturers uh, is is something else that needs to be figured out. Definitely. Yeah, and something to definitely watch for. Yeah. So last part of this bill that really um, caught my eye and really saw a lot of widespread support. There wasn't anyone that was really against this aspect of it, but it was that Congress is very serious about working towards a regulated solution for counter UAV Mm -hmm. support. So if a bad actor hacks into a drone, um, they want a very standardized way. How do we destroy that drone? How do we take it down? Or maybe how do we rehack it so that we don't lose that expensive property but we bring it back into our control yeah um so basically drone manufacturers the department of justice the faa the commercial drone lobby they were all very in support of this and Mm -hmm. really the only people that were not in support of this and i thought it was kind of funny it was in an article i said terrorists probably are not in very support (laughs) of this um but also a a small group of um drone users who think more government control might actually restrict consumer drone activity because it's just the idea of, you know, what if a consumer doesn't know what they're doing with their um, with their drone and then uh, a counter support drone comes yeah. in and shoots it down. So yeah. I think it's a more of a conversation of how do we get everyone on the same page uh-huh. so that we get standardized counter support. But it's not affecting the hobbyist because they're in line with yeah. all the regulations. Was that kind of the conversation you were seeing as well? Uh, so this this is a topic that, you know, it's it's been a longstanding thing, with yeah. uh, especially as the technology becomes more prevalent. Um, so DJI, for the most part, believes that uh, majority of people that fly drones are doing so uh, legally and, and with good intention. Right. And, you know, sometimes mistakes happen and totally understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, so on our end specifically, we developed a, a platform called Aeroscope. Uh, and what Aeroscope does is it allows you to pick up a radio signal from the drone, uh, specifically a DJI one, but I think we can tap into other drones if if we are allowed to. Right. Um, and what it does is it gives us access to the pilot, uh, pilot information, where they took off from, flight path. Uh, and this allows, put in the right hands of authorities, uh, allows them to kind of uh, trace back from what's, what's going on. Okay. Um, and that, to us, is a, seems like a better solution than some sort of, you know, take down the drone with some other 
method of right. shooting it down or whatever. Um, so this is the the real way we're pushing it on our end is that you know again most people we think are are flying reasonably right. again mistakes happen uh, and then put the system into the hands of um, authorities uh, or if you own a, a, a stadium of some sort right. you can track this you can locate the pilot um, and you can you know take whatever measure is is, is needed to right. try and uh, counter the counter the drone yeah yeah my favorite piece of counter drone tech I saw it inter drone actually. Um, was this netting? So yeah, it was actually, netting, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was this, cool. yeah, it was this drone flies up and just shoots like a Spider-Man web yeah. and just grabs it. Very mm-hmm. uh, reminded me of you've seen R- Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like when they're walking through Endor and mm-hmm. Chewie pulls on that carcass yep. and then whoop, they just can't yep, yep, <laughs> pull yep. up into the sack. Yeah, so yeah. it's, I mean, sometimes the simplest kind of solution mm-hmm. is going to be the most effective. Yeah. So um, I'm interested in seeing how. The government actually implements this on a very standard level, yeah. um, and I'm sure DJI will be part of that conversation. Oh yeah, and you know, pushing to at least give their insight on what they think is best. So yeah, looking yeah. forward to that future. Yeah, and, and it's something like our team in DC does a lot because again, it's it's such new technology, and putting and we don't want someone to come in who has not really the best knowledge or understanding of the product and the technology right. to come in, uh, uh, put this rule in without, you know, understanding, you know, ab- the technology uh, as, right. as deep as we do. So being active and trying to say, hey, this could be a solution. Let's find it uh, together. I mean, that's that's a goal of our DC team for sure. Definitely. Well, Patrick, I really want to thank you for joining us on yeah, the podcast. Uh, I think your insight was very invaluable. Thank you. I know our audience definitely enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to seeing what DJI does here in the future, yeah, um, how tech continues to expand, the regulations continue to change and evolve. But, uh, yeah, I'll definitely have to call you back up here in a few months as <laughs> tech makes its way into the market, see how it's uh, what the response is like. Cool. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Thanks again, Patrick. Yeah, Great to have pleasure. you on. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to bring Cameron Cooper from Market Scale here into the podcast booth. We're going to be chatting about her top five personal picks for booths, products here at CES. She definitely saw some cool stuff. We'll be right back.
righty, everyone. We're back in the CES Market Scale Podcast Studio. Uh, if you're also checking out our Instagram Live, you'll see all this beautiful wallpaper behind us. It was definitely a bonus I was not expecting. I was kind of thinking, all right, we're going to set up in our studio. It's going to be a white slat wall. But no, CES does you right. They give you beautiful wallpaper. So you should definitely tune into Instagram Live if you want some visual content to go along with this. You'll probably see some behind the scenes of us shuffling and getting between our guests too, so you get to see the nitty gritty. All right, so we've got Cam Cooper on the podcast now. Hello. Hi, Cameron. And Cameron, here, you want to get a little closer to the mic? We want everyone to hear your beautiful yeah. voice. So Cameron, um, you have obviously been here with us the past day and a half, um, and You've been working with some clients, you've been getting to check out booths, and I really wanted to have you here on what I'm going to dub Cam's Corner with an exclamation point um, to just chat a bit about what your top five booths were after touring around. Something that really uh, caught your eye because of the look, because of the booth offerings, maybe there was a mm -hmm. cool game or something there, some of the tech showcase, and just what pushed all these over the top. So... How are you doing today? Good to have you on. I'm good. I'm good. As you mentioned, I'm battling some sickness. Yes, so, you are. But, slightly. You know, pushing through. CES has been great. I have seen some awesome stuff here that I never thought I would see, so it's been a lot of fun. True. Same. So why don't we go ahead and walk through your top five picks. Um, these aren't in any particular order, just something that caught your eye. You jotted it down. So let's start with your first one. You said it was Arcade One Up. Yeah. So describe that booth a little bit to me um, and what they were offering. Yeah, Arcade One Up was probably the first one that caught my eye. They had a lot of really cool game setups, like tons and tons of, you know, areas where people can play. There was a huge Pac-Man uh, setup that you can walk yeah. into and go under. They had Galaga and Mortal Kombat, and everyone was just loving it. So I love Mortal Kombat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did get a chance to sit down and play some Galaga. Good. I'm not very good at it, no. I found, but, you know, it was fun. Yeah. It's a cool booth. We got an interview with someone there, actually posted it on our social media. Um, we'll have a more concrete interview up on our site later awesome. um but yeah it was really i mean it was impossible to not be drawn to a giant pac-man head that's yeah. waka walking you and so you know exactly. so it's it um it definitely caught my eye it was cool and their product is is just really neat yeah dense compact and sleek um retro gaming yeah who doesn't love that right yeah I don't know who doesn't. Maybe crazy not. <laughs> yeah, so. exactly. If you don't love it, get off the podcast. Yeah. What are you doing? Okay, cool. <laughs> so our next booth uh, was Omron. Tell yes. us a bit about Omron. Omron was so cool. So they had a whole bunch of like robot-looking spiders, but the coolest part was this robot that could play ping pong against okay. you, and it could like beat you because it was so good, and it can like tell like your next move. And we were talking about it earlier, and you said it's you know they're learning what you're gonna do, and right. it's really to practice with and get better. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Um, we it's crazy. We actually got an interview with them too, wow. and that's on our social, or at least will be up soon. Um, and what caught my eye most about that was the technology is like kind of surface level what it's like a ping pong playing robot mm -hmm. but when you dive in deeper that machine learning technology they're applying it to a lot of companies um in a b2b sense so healthcare um other software tech applications mm -hmm. but yeah i mean that kind of intuitive machine learning that can respond and physically you know has yeah. physical responses is very important for the future of like manufacturing and everything yeah. it, it really it was really cool yeah there was a lot of people gathered around watching it waiting for the next game to start so people were really interested in that was like right at the front of the hall so there are a lot of cool shots that people got yeah for yeah. sure i know they asked me to play the 
the drone no not a drone the um the ping pong playing robot and i had to decline because i just knew i would get totally oh, yeah. thrashed so yeah. <laughs> i was not even going to give them the satisfaction of, yeah, hey, let's, no. let's get behind the I robot didn't, i nah. definitely didn't partake either <laughs> just you know bystander yeah, I'm going to get crushed. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, let's jump into the next one. Hypervision yeah. or Hyper-VSN. I'm sure it's pronounced Hypervision. What about that booth caught your eye? So they had a lot of really cool holographic stuff at their at their booth. Um, as you got closer, you realized that it was actually fans that was making like the all the graphics come up. And they had really cool like Disney art where they had um, Tinkerbell from Peter Pan like dancing around and flying. Yeah. And it looked really cool. I'd never seen anything like that and you couldn't even tell it was a fan. So it looked like actual like holographic stuff which is <laughs> what I think originally caught a lot of people's eye yeah. and got a lot of people to gather around. So it was really cool. Oh yeah. I, I didn't get to see that one but if I get to be converted into a little Tinkerbell I, I wouldn't complain. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was so cool. Um, and then you also had Oob Tech. Um, yeah. Tell me a bit about what you saw at that booth. So Oob Tech um, they had a really some really cool robot stuff. They had had a whole bunch of little miniature robots dancing to the same song, and it was really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then they also had their um, robot that they call Walker. Okay. And apparently, um, I was doing a little bit of research on it after I went and saw it, but uh-huh. they made a lot of upgrades to it, and, you know, they showcased him the new upgrades at CES. Yeah. And he was walking around. He had arms. He could open doors. He was talking. It was so cool, and it was, like, extremely, like, uh, what's it like R two D two ish, but like way more crazy in advance. It was weird. I love that. Yeah. I mean, hey, I'm all I'm here for the Star Wars. So yeah. Yeah, I love exactly. it. And then let's go ahead and jump into. Let's see, you had several here, but let's wrap it up. You got Segway yeah. on here. I know you were with them a good portion of the day yesterday. What about their booth? Really caught your eye. I think the way that Segway did their booth this year is really cool because it showcased how you know how where they started and where they are now and where they're looking into the future show a lot of people think Segway is just you know the self-balancing stuff but they do all the scooters now they have a lot of cool delivery pods and transport robots that are coming into the future and they showcase a lot of their products for everyone to check out love it and uh if people want to go check out that booth, you might actually catch the voice of B2B yeah. on one of their uh, product videos. I'm wearing my tight blue shades, looking fresh. Yeah, yeah. Right Not to scooters. brag, but I do like those shades. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. No, the scooters they have there are cool, and, you know, you rode the scooter great in that video. Uh, thank you. Yeah. It, it took a lot of hard work, but yeah. we, we made it happen. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Well, thank you, Cam. I hope yeah. everyone enjoyed it. Cam's Corner, exclamation point. Yes. Um, it's always great to hear what you enjoyed at CES. And, um, yeah, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks cool. Guys. Yeah, thank you, Cam. All right, so we are going to have a, another guest coming up here soon from the company Transitel. But before we do that, I wanted to... Just set the tone for we're transitioning now into a new technology. We're talking about the transportation world and really looking at how the connected car uh, is becoming the future, both for car manufacturers and for users. Everyone is coming on board. Um, it's, it's pretty exciting. So we wanted to preface this interview with another interview that we've done previously, and this is with Dr. Kara Kuckelman. She's a professor of transportation engineering at the University of Texas, and she came on to chat about really the buzz around car tech, which is a self-driving car, right? So it's the shiniest of car tech. She comes on the podcast to give us a little bit of an explanation of why self-driving cars are poised to change America. It's a good one. Let's go ahead and jump right in.
How will self-driving electric cars affect car ownership down the line once they get sent out in mass? Well, we hope car ownership will fall. So we hope that people will be buying trips as they need them and ideally sharing rides with others. And this allows for a more efficient fleet and a much more efficiently used fleet. Although there will be empty driving from me to you, for example, if I let go of the vehicle, my trip has ended, and now you're asking for a vehicle, that vehicle has to travel somewhat empty. And so trying to coordinate pickups and drop-offs can be very helpful in reducing those empty miles. But I think that would allow my household certainly to let go of at least one vehicle. And once we feel comfortable that service times are very reliable, even in strange incidents like bad weather, we're still being served because there's a lot of seats on these vehicles right now that are empty. And of course, your vehicle and my vehicle are sitting still about 23 hours a day, every day. Now, from my knowledge, self-driving vehicles will be significantly cheaper than the current price we pay for things like taxi and Uber. Do you think that's going to be enough for most people to say, hey, I don't need a car and I'm just going to rent whenever I need to go somewhere? Right. Cars demand a lot of attention. I mean, they demand registration and insurance and emissions testing and lubrication and new tires. And so to be able to get rid of some of those headaches at about the same price that you and I currently pay to own and operate our vehicles would be wonderful. And that's what our testing suggests, that these vehicles really can come down to about 50 cents per revenue mile. So that means when somebody's inside there and there's a passenger in there paying for that trip, and so all the costs are associated with those passenger trips, then you've got that vehicle at 50 cents a mile, which is less than what most people pay right now to own and operate, especially newer vehicles, because there's a lot of depreciation on a newer vehicle. So vehicles right now cost about 60 cents per travel mile. And of course, if you were to call on an Uber or a Lyft, even if it's one of the express or Lyft line type trips, you're paying, you know, close to $2 a mile. Are most Americans going to actually own these kinds of self-driving vehicles, or is it mostly going to be through services like Uber and Lyft that we actually get rides from them? I think most, especially at the beginning, are going to be rentals because the sensor checking and the contracting of where those vehicles are allowed to operate and how they're allowed to be operated is pretty complex. And the manufacturers don't want to trust you and me to keep up with that. They want to have professionals on board that know what they're doing to make sure that those sensors are functioning properly, the algorithms are being tested, any updates to the software are being made immediately. Uh, there's remote backup. So if you and I are in a business meeting and our car is out there, it's much better if there's a, a proper fleet manager for that. So that's going to be the big opportunity first. And long term, once the technology is proven super reliable, yes, they will be selling a lot to private owners who will be able to afford them once the price comes down. All right. Again, that was Dr. Kara Kokelman from the University of Texas at Austin. I loved her insight on why self-driving cars are going to be the future here in America. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's shiny tech, it's exciting tech, um, but I think there are other aspects of transportation technology that deserve as much buzz. And that's what we're going to be talking about today with Philippe Vigneault. He is the head of business development at Transitel. 
And what we're going to be talking about today is why are car manufacturers moving to become telecom players in order to provide car connectivity services? It's a pretty interesting transition within the industry and wanted to get one of the emerging leaders within that industry to give us some insight. So, Philippe, how are you doing today? Very well, Daniel. Very well. Love it. Um, so, you're from France, right? I am from France, yeah, as, as my accent says. No, no, I love it. So uh, I'm guessing that flight was pretty long coming into Vegas? It, it was, yeah, through Atlanta, actually. Oh, through Atlanta. Yeah. Okay, so you had a double stop. Yeah. But since you've been here, I guess, remind me, is this your first time at CES or have you been here before? No, no, we've been here for the last uh, three years. Great. I, I believe, yeah, but this year we have a proper stand in North Hall and uh, we're, uh, of course, uh, exposing all our uh, services to uh, the uh, automotive industry. Wonderful. Globally to the OEMs, uh, basically. Yeah. Because uh, we're not only providing cellular connectivity for the car industry, but also for the laptop and tablet manufacturers and right. the IoT and IOV uh, industry, basically. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So tell me a bit about your experience so far here at CES. What has this third year been like for y'all? Well, it's been uh, thrilling and uh, quite exciting. There's been uh, quite a I mean, the, the, the whole industry is getting into a whole revolution sure when it is. comes to... Uh, car connectivity and car are becoming more and more as I happy to say uh, laptops on wheels uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> which is a great visual exactly. now imagine a literal laptop on wheels yeah, who knows exactly yeah, maybe one day and, <laughs> and as laptop are uh, you need uh, I mean there's several services attached to it and uh, cars uh, are uh, connected for basically three reasons uh, the first one being of course uh, uh, the telematic uh, around the car, so all those sensors getting in, you need to retrieve those data and getting it into the cloud and right. do the data crunching to make sure that there is a predictive maintenance program attached to it. That's the, the first bit. The second bit is that the one that uh, the customer sees is all the infotainment platform that needs uh, data and cellular connectivity for that through uh, services such as uh, internet radio, you might want to have access to Spotify uh, on the go, and of course a Wi-Fi on board, which is becoming uh, more and more uh, popular. So that's the the second part. Yeah. And the third, uh, uh, which is uh, by far the, the the biggest in terms of uh, cellular connectivity need, is of course uh, uh, updating uh, the software and the firmware of the car on the go. So uh, in the future, you'll have to update your car like every single month. Yeah. So uh, as you do for your for your uh, for your OS cell phone, basically. right? Uh, yeah, yeah. interesting. Or for your laptop, same same thing. So it prevents a lot, uh, or excuse me, it introduces a lot of new benefits, but it also does change up then how you have to maintain your car. I mean, now you not only have to take it in for service, but you're going to be making sure it's updated too. You know, it's uh, it's well, interesting. Well, it will it will of course update automatically. Of course, yeah. Uh, but uh, when it comes to uh, bringing uh, cellular into your car, so either you will buy a package of data together with your car and it will, will come together with the car or will you will have to top up your car as you top up your phone, right. uh, your prepaid phone basically. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you might want to have a, a regular package of uh, a reasonable amount of data uh, uh, during the year, but when you go on holiday with your kids uh, on the on the rear seats watching Netflix, for instance, you might want to have a larger package of, of data for them to uh, 
to uh, to travel basically right. uh, so uh, so and this is uh, becoming a reality right now we are servicing brands such as uh, Jaguar Land Rover Wonderful. in Europe already, uh, already with these kinds of service and as uh, the, the new EV are coming in into the market of mm -hmm. course more and more of those services will be uh, available so uh, we're just at the beginning of this uh, revolution uh, but it will be more and more common to have this kind of service in our cars. Which is exciting, for yes, sure. So I'm interested, I know Transitel, obviously you mentioned it, doesn't just do technology or connected technology services for cars. You have other services as well. Yes. I, I want to know, kind of in an industry perspective, why did Transitel and other companies that are looking to provide these services look to cars as this might be the next big market for us to develop solutions for what mm. what drew the transportation industry to uh, you know really become part of this conversation well first of all uh, we are we are not a start startup anymore we've been there for the past 18 years which is great yeah, yeah you're you're leading the change exactly uh -huh. and uh, and our uh, historic is that we've been uh, we were uh, an MVNO enabler for the past 18 years, so launching mobile virtual network operator around the planet for the past 18 years. We've launched uh, close to 150 uh, different operations uh, uh, around the world, mainly in Europe, but, uh, but also, uh, also uh, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And for us, it was a natural uh, trend to see uh, OEMs globally uh, try to uh, leverage on their devices uh, to bring uh, services to, to it and uh, as they uh, want to uh, to have a new revenue stream become basically mobile operators themselves mobile virtual network operators right data only uh, but at the end of the day selling data as uh, a mobile operator would do basically and uh, this is exactly happening in the car industry but it will be also happening in the laptop and tablet industry as uh, the always connected PC is going to become a reality uh, in, uh, well, it's already a, a reality for some brands, right. but it's going to re become a reality for all the laptop tablets uh, and the tablet brands also. Definitely. Yeah. So this whole transition for car manufacturers to <laughs> really not only just be car manufacturers, but telecom players too. I mean, they're wanting to become industry leaders. Which uh, manufacturers are you seeing want to lead this change and how are you seeing them actually implement that into their offerings you know like I, it sounds like a very structural change to their their business and to their company as a whole which must shake things up but you know they're obviously wanting to do it and it's an exciting change so how have you seen those car manufacturers evolve to become telecom players yeah so well it, it starts with the need of the of the telematic as i was say, right. saying uh, earlier and of course retrieve data from the car to to make sure it uh, it uh, works uh, properly but uh, moving along of course as i was saying the infotainment inside the car is the key element to bring uh, this connectivity to the car and bring new service uh, as well so when it comes to telematic you have other services attached to it, which such as uh, insurance services, and you, the car needs to be connected to, to provide this kind of service. So they will monetize the more and more uh, services such as insurance or others uh, through the connectivity uh, of the car because they would need to track uh, how you use your car, right. uh, how, uh, how, how you drive your car, of course, and how often you use it to, uh, to, um, well, to make sure that... Uh, the insurance plan you have uh, uh, actually fits to uh, to your need. 
the model, uh, they are all uh, trying to find the right uh, business model, uh, and, uh, and it's certainly an area where we will see in the future uh, new, uh, new development and new uh, brilliant idea, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Uh, but uh, this is coming up, and of course, uh, services such as uh, streaming, radio, etc., are going to be monetized within, within the car, as well as video, of course, as 5G will come along. Right, right. So uh, I think part of this conversation, too, is that as car manufacturers become telecom players, they now have to add more regulations, and they have to at least be aware of the regulations that come with being within telecom, with uh, providing those kind of services. So um, how have you seen those companies evolve to make sure they're staying ahead of the curve and they're not falling behind on those regulations? And also explain to our audience what some of those regulations are. So... It's basically the regulation of mobile virtual network operator mm -hmm. and uh, depending on the country, because we are active in more than 140 uh, countries with this kind of service, uh, the, uh, the car manufacturer needs to comply with the local uh, regulation, telecom regulation. So if, of course, the, uh, the uh, mobile virtual network operator legislation or regulation is, uh, is uh, well, allowed in a, in a specific country such as, uh, such as in the U.S., then uh, it's not a problem for them to provide these kind of service as a, as a usual mobile virtual network operator. You have quite a few already in the U.S. that are very, uh, very popular. But you need to comply with the uh, telecom regulation as any other service provider, basically. Now, some car manufacturer would like to do that or some other would like us to do that on their behalf. Right. And that's why <coughs> we have also launched a generic brand called UBG, and this uh, generic brand is meant to be used uh, by car manufacturer who actually doesn't want to uh, have a direct relationship when it comes to telecom with their uh, end user, with right. the driver. They just want the tech. Uh, they exactly. And in that case, we will handle this uh, for them. Mm. And in that case, uh, we will provide the driver with uh, an app in, uh, in order to... Uh, to top up their uh, their their car for right. with uh, Wi-Fi access or mobile access, and in uh, and it will ease uh, the uh, the way uh, an OEM can get into this environment. Right. And uh, well, it can be just the first step for them, easing the way uh, to get in touch with the uh, with their customer on the long run and become themselves a mobile a true virtual network operator. Yeah, have you seen it be difficult for car manufacturers that do want their own in-house telecom services, have you found it difficult for them to adapt to you know, making sure that they are in line with those regulations? And if it is, how do they educate themselves? What is that process for, for actually staying ahead of the curve? Well, uh, as I was saying, we are uh, at the beginning of a revolution. Of a, of a revolution. And right. Industry-wide. Yeah, is, is always difficult, of yes. course. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, car manufacturers are not all of them really organized at the moment to uh, become a mobile operator. Right, to become a telecom player. Yeah. yeah, or even a service provider, right. basically. Some of them are, uh, are doing their revolution. It's taking time. It's going to take uh, a few more years, I guess. But they are shifting from a usual industrial player to, well, software manufacturer, well, software developers mm -hmm. and, uh, and service provider. And they are developing now more and more uh, software development center uh, or, uh, or uh, other service, basically. So uh, this revolution is taking time. 
uh, and uh, as it is a traditional industry, uh, it goes rather slowly compared yeah. to uh, the uh, high-tech environment. But uh, they're hiring a lot of, uh, of engineers, of high-tech engineers at the moment, which was n not really the habit for the past uh, 50 years. I right, <laughs> right. So, so that's, that's very exciting because it's very new for everybody. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, of course, very challenging for, mm -hmm. for, for them. Uh, there will be ups and downs. Uh, but uh, maybe there will be also new players coming up, right? Uh, because uh, this will leave the door open to new, what's called the new EVs, new yeah. electric ve vehicles, of course, uh, and uh, it will be also challenging for them. But that's, that's uh, an well exciting environment. Definitely. Course, yeah. So I think to wrap things up, it'd be good to chat about one or two of the car manufacturers that are doing it right. Mm -hmm. The ones that are staying ahead of the regulations, they're providing quality service, and you know it could be a point of education for other car manufacturers. Hey, turn, look to these companies. They are leading the way in becoming telecom players within the transportation industry. So I know Jaguar and- Jaguar and Land Rover uh -huh. is, is definitely doing this, and they are quite uh, uh, on the edge uh, of, uh, of launching new services uh, in Europe mainly, but also in the U.S. Yeah. coming up. Uh, of course, in the U.S., you have uh, the first player of them being Tesla, of course. Right. I mean, Tesla uh, is was the first to bring these kind of service on, to on the market, which it's a large screen that needs to be connected, of right. course. And uh, Tesla has a one gig update every month uh, in terms of firmware or software update, right. so it definitely needs to be, to be connected, of right. course. But uh, uh, new players uh, such as Byton that we have seen here uh -huh. uh, uh, on, on the show uh, will be, of course, fully connected with a lot of service going on. At the end of the day, when you have uh, such a, uh, a brilliant screen as the, uh, as the Byton card, I don't know whether you've seen that. Yeah. Car, it's really impressive. But without connectivity, it's not much. Right. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, so definitely those, uh, those, uh, those brands are... Uh, well, being challenges, but good challenges, and are moving the market towards uh, towards very exciting services. Right. Yes. Well, I think what's most exciting for me to see is, I think a lot of these offerings are still in more luxury level car brands, but well, Byton is going to be forty thousand. Oh, okay, so true. So yeah, so it's not that more accessible. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, and so that's uh, that's I guess they are a new player. So mm. I'm excited to see how this technology ends up becoming that standard where you're getting it in your Honda, your Toyota, you know, you're, you're getting it in basically any car. It's now standard for it to be connected. Um, it's, it feels like it's right around the corner. It's not that far away. No, no. And uh, I mean, in the, in the, uh, in this year and uh, the year to come, I don't see any brands that won't be connected right. or won't have a slice of connectivity inside it, whether it's going to be telematic or infotainment or whatever. I mean, all brands out there, uh, on their new model have connectivity and I'm talking about this year. Yeah, so uh, so it's becoming a, a must-have right. Uh, I mean, it, it's uh, not the future. It's the now no, basically. It's like, yeah, of course yeah. Uh, Of course new services will will come uh, uh, in the future uh, Together with 5g especially uh, as the, the car will connect will uh, will connect together with the uh, v2x uh, technology. Yeah, uh, but this is going to be there in a couple of years' time or, or three, four years' time. But uh, as we go towards uh, the VV2X, car connectivity is already a reality in 2019. Yeah, yeah. well...
it's exciting to see it happen in real time and i'm looking forward to seeing what you know once 2019 reaches its completion which car manufacturers are on board with this new idea of being a telecom player within the whole industry so philippe i really like to thank you for coming on the podcast thank you very much. again for our listeners philippe vigneault is the head of business development for transitel and if you want to learn a little bit more about their offerings you can go to www.transitel.com to learn more about how the transportation industry is evolving to become more connected and, you know, basically making its way into what we're standardizing now as the 21st century. Mm. So or visit us at North Hall if you are. Yes, exactly. Us. If you're at CES, you definitely got to go check out their booth in person. Philippe, thank you so much thank for joining us now. on the podcast. It was wonderful. So we're now going to transition our content over. We're going to be looking at another emerging technology. Uh, I hope you all aren't getting uh, whiplash from the transition from tech to tech, but now we're going to be looking at reality technology. And we're not just sticking to VR because really we're going to be chatting with a company soon that explores simulated reality and the idea of should we be investing this much money into VR as the reality bending tech of the future. But uh, before that, let's vouch for VR a bit because it is pretty undeniable that it has commercial and consumer applications that are continuing to grow. And one of my favorite applications actually comes from the ed tech industry um, because Education as a whole can be, you know, if you don't implement the technology correctly, the results can be very misguided. So everyone within EdTech knows tech has to be implemented authentically and intentionally. And it's not just for games and distractions. It can be used in the classroom for teaching practical skills, empathy, collaboration, etc. So one of our favorite conversations on the topic came with the director of education at HP. His name is Elliot Levin. And he's one of the biggest advocates for VR in the classroom and really thinks it will transform the classroom. So here's a chunk of our conversation from the Market Scale EdTech podcast. Hope you enjoy, and we'll transition over to some simulated reality here in a few minutes. Let's jump into the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about today, and that is VR in the classroom as a learning tool. So, I don't know, how do you want to approach this? Well, you know, it's come a long way in the last decade. You know, if you go back to some of the earliest VR tools that were being used in schools, it was actually Erasma that started over in Europe. And Erasma right. is still today, it's now an HP product. Uh, Erasma would work on your smartphone. Uh, a teacher could take a bulletin board and let's say a, a photo of, of Benjamin Franklin. And when you go over it with a smartphone and the Erasma app, that visual picture of Benjamin Franklin would trigger a video or an animation that the teacher associated with it. So suddenly you started having interactive bulletin boards. We've seen school systems create yearbooks that completely come to life on devices to see the band marching, to see the school play, uh, to see the football team score a winning touchdown, to see the valedictorian deliver a speech. Really, you know, innovative experiences. And what's unique about it is it's kind of evolved over time. Smartphones were all the rage five, six years ago. They've kind of given way to this new, newer generation of desktop-based VR. And people have seen this with a number of products. ZSpace, for example, phenomenal uh, company that's been doing very well in this area. Uh, HP actually was manufacturing some of the uh, desktop displays for them. 
In that environment, the 3D image is generated on the display and the student or teachers are wearing 3D glasses and they're able to interact in much more detail than they could on smartphone type devices. And one of the key things is about the refresh rates and graphics, because anybody who's ever tried VR, you know if you're not getting a refresh rate of at least seven, uh, 90 frames per minute, then you're probably going to get dizzy, maybe even a little bit nauseous. So that right. new generation of VR technology has been really effective. Students are mastering concepts of anatomy, physiology, chemistry, electrical engineering, just to name a few, in a much quicker time period. Now what's coming is, you know, really wearable VR technology like, you know, HBZ VR backpack. And what's coming after that? Well, that's even more to be discussed. Right. So what do you think is like a, a, the, one of the best examples you've seen right now of, of VR being used in a classroom? Well, what has been so successful for the last few years are solutions like ZSpace, mm -hmm. where they've created, you know, a, let's say a middle school STEM lab. And they're using it mostly for anatomy, physiology, biology, and some of the other uh, core STEM subjects. It's been so successful. Students have been so effectively, you know, mastering concepts quicker that now those same districts are introducing this technology into their high schools. Now we're seeing at the university levels, community colleges, schools of nursing, intro science courses, those departments are now reaching out. Because in essence, the students have been using this technology for the last handful of years, have what I almost call a tech expectation. They come to the table saying, this is how I now learn. This is the default standard for me. Don't try to put me back into a lecture-based environment to read from a textbook or even a digital textbook. What we need is more experiential learning like this. Now, where that's really even today being turned on its head is now more of the wearable VR technology. Tools like that ZVR backpack? Well, first off, I can now freely roam. Now, anybody who's ever done VR, especially like gaming at home, you've probably got a headset and controllers that are connected back via cables to your desktop. There's truly nothing funnier than watching one of my own kids wearing a headset and seeing their head jerk to the side because they've walked so far that the cable's pulling them back to their main console. And here in a VR environment, you could have, in essence, you know, 300 feet by 300 feet. In essence, the distance of a football field, you know, times three width-wise. So you could have a very large experiential surface to really explore. You know, how do you understand the magnitude of the Eiffel Tower? Well, go wear a complete headset and go walk around the Eiffel Tower in a 360-degree VR experience. And that's going to be as close as we can get today to having that sort of real-life experience. So what do you think are some of the barriers to getting educators to adopt some of this kind of tech in the classroom? You know, right now, uh, the biggest concern we often hear is about budget. And in right. fact, a lot of school systems will say, oh, we can't afford the lab of, let's say, a desktop-based solution. But those environments can cost about sixty to $80,000 U.S. And that will include the technology, the content, the curriculum, even setup and professional development. And if you think about it only from a tech budget, you might be right. 
but school systems are thinking more along the lines of this also has to reflect our curriculum budget, our professional development budget. And if students are mastering the subjects better, are we increasing the passage rate? Are we not going to have to invest as much money for children to attend summer school because they really get it and they're advancing? And now they're going to be taking more potentially advanced placement courses because they've mastered the subject and they're willing and more excited about taking that chance. So for a lot of schools that say the budget is the concern on some of the current technology, I would say it's time to look at the bigger picture. Now, for some of that newer technology, like the wearable VR experiences, they're not yet a completely, you know, neatly wrapped with a bow model where you get all the curriculum and content with it. So right now we see a lot of universities actually building their own experiences, building their own games and simulations for it. And I suspect we'll be in a very similar situation with some of the very same content providers delivering that sort of bundled package solution probably in the next 18 to 24 months. What do you see on the horizon in regards to VR and being a, a learning tool? Well, I, I think we have a long ways to go, even with the current technology that's becoming available and the wearable you know, ZVR backpacks and similar sort of wearable technology is relatively new. And you know that's we've been introducing that just since earlier this year. So you're going to see a lot more content being created by the professional publishers and content providers. I think we'll see a lot more information coming and resources from universities and subject matter experts. If you were to ask me what's coming down the road after that, I would probably suspect it's going to be haptic holography. Right. Um, you know, holograms that not just you see, but you're able through ultrasonic waves to touch or feel. You know, years ago, there was a university in Queensland, Australia, that tried to make a very well-intentioned effort at creating the first holodeck. And it was nothing more than a room with monitors wrapped from floor to ceiling. Kind of bulky, not that exciting, but I love the spirit of what they're doing. And, you know, if we, if we joke and say that, uh, you know, VR can become that sort of holodeck experience, Really, the only other thing we're missing from, you know, Star Trek is, you know, the idea of the replicator. Right. And I think that's probably what's going to come next on the 3D side. You know, right now, everybody's used to printing, you know, some little object or something. But as we start working with different additives and different substrates, different materials, and we can use them at the same time, imagine what it would be like if in one layer, you're printing conductive material that could carry an electric you know, transmission through. And then the next layer, you're printing um, an, you know, plastic type insulation. Then you're printing a shell. You're not printing parts. What you're now printing is the entire lamp. Right. So I, I think, you know, for many of us that grew up, you know, wishing we had replicators, wishing we had holodecks, that sort of reality is coming a lot sooner than we hoped. Uh, so maybe we'll actually see it in this lifetime because I know, Elmer, I have not seen my flying car yet. All right. So that, again, was Elliot Levin, Director of Education at HP. We've had him on the podcast twice now, um, but that first conversation, uh, that was Elmer Guardado. He is a market scale host for us. He loved that conversation very well, and I really love that he brought up some of this other reality technology, right? So we're not just looking at VR and AR, but 
literal tangible holographic technology um, stuff that is going to be next level and is going to I don't know really transform what we think of as reality tech it's not just an you know a goggle that you put on your face but it's something that you can actually interact with and is literally you know virtual simulated it's it's tangible so that's what I'm most excited about seeing um, we've got Taylor Bagley back on the podcast real quick just to chat a bit about reality technology on just a pretty surface level because it's something that interests us both a lot Taylor how you doing doing well man uh, you know this has been a great show for anybody who is interested in uh, virtual reality yeah. augmented reality uh, simulated reality mm -hmm. uh, there is it, it seems right now that that technology is just boundless yeah it really is I mean even at our hotel um, when you're walking down you're walking up from the uber pickup pick up, uh, pick up area a little tongue twist there for the fans um, you got to like walk by this display where a holographic guy comes up on the screen, starts chatting with you, and it looks like he's standing within a room surrounded by like guitars and whatever. He was promoting a show, but it, I mean, it's it's tangible. It's right there. It's basically holographic technology, and so I mean, we're seeing it everywhere. It's not it's not something that is really an emerging tech anymore. It is just tech that people mm -hmm. use. So I think really where the conversation lies now is how do we evolve from here? How does this become something that it becomes even more sci-fi than we can even imagine? How do we get rid of the goggles? How do we go to you, know, you can actually see or interact with real simulated reality? Yeah, and I think some of those applications that we're going to be looking at right around the corner, um, you know, we, we have these ideas of, of uh, you know, getting rid of that barrier, you know, maybe that's a contact lens, maybe that's something that, that is uh, um, an unintrusive wearable, but there, there's a ton of applications for this augmented reality. Um, look in the transportation industry, for right. example. Um, you know, imagine having a windshield where your GPS and your navigation and, and everything is right. augmented onto the image of the road in front of you. Um, everything that you see when looking out of your car can... Um, you know, resemble what that augmentation is built for. And, right. And I think that, uh, you know, things like that are going to have, you know, not only applications in uh, the consumer market, but, uh, you know, a ton of commercial application, a ton of um, uses that, that, you know, we, we can really see a lot of value from in a ton of industries. Definitely. Well, I'm excited to have our next guest on because she is going to give us a little more insight on that simulated reality and what it looks like to you know, still use a wearable, but a wearable that allows you to interact with your environment in a very authentic and real-time way. So looking forward to that one. Taylor, great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Yeah. So in this next feature, we are going to be chatting with Nadia Giuliani. She's the COO of Next Industries, and we're going to be focusing on their product, Tactagon Skin, which is pushing this trend of using natural movements to control machinery and development of wearable technologies that, you know, gets away from the face and is something that you can literally wear and allows you to interact with this new simulated reality in a more authentic way. So we're going to take a quick break, get Nadia here in the studio, and we'll get a wonderful interview from her coming right up.
Hello. We are back here on Market Scale Live at CES, and I'd like to welcome our third guest today. Our third guest is Nadia Giuliani. She's the COO of Next Industries. Nadia, great to have Hi. you on. How are Hi, you? Everybody. Fine. I'm very fine. I'm very excited. Yes. Thanks for this great experience. Absolutely. I'm, it's always great to have passionate people on the podcast describing some products or some trends in their industry that really stood out to them. So I know you're from Italy. Yes. Um, tell me a bit. What was that? What was that flight like? We had someone else on recently that was um, from France. So Hello. a lot of those transcontinental flights. I'm sure that's can be kind of exhausting. Very very long. Yes. <laughs> we we experienced also an emergency on board. Oh no. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> a medical. Uh, oh medical no. um, uh, problem. Okay. So we had to land. Oh no! Wait. <laughs> in the so middle of the Atlantic Ocean. No, you yeah. landed in the sea. Not in the okay. sea. Okay. <laughs> in the Azores Island. Wow. So that's crazy. Uh, there, yeah, and uh, we lost our coincidence to from New York to Las Vegas, oh but no. fortunately we. Uh, find another plane so on time wow <laughs> and you, you made it here on the podcast so everything yeah. <laughs> worked out you made it okay um so it's good to have you on the podcast we're going to be chatting about your uh product tactagon skin yeah. i'm very excited to dig into its applications in b2b markets explore the tech behind it and why simulated reality is kind of the future for reality technology right it's not just vr and ar but SR is um, is becoming very potent and really it's is next up I guess I would say uh, before we do that I'd love to know a little bit about your time here at CES um, is this your first year at CES or have you been before no it's the first time okay so we ours as well so <laughs> love okay, it okay good so we thought to participate last year but it was too early for us I see so now we are ready and uh, we are ready to introduce our product so we decided to participate on our own we have yeah. uh, our booth at Sense. Okay. Sans Expo, and um, uh, we we are located into the wearable area. Right, and so what has the experience been like? You know, first time around. I know uh, this is the way I phrased it, but overwhelming in the best way possible. Right, yeah. it's like just so much to consume, but all of it is so interesting. Is that kind of how you felt too? The right word could be crazy. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because there are lots, so many things to be seen here. Yeah. A lot of technology, great ideas, great products, uh, actually speaking. And uh, in fact, we think this is uh, also our show because um, we, can great, uh, we can do great things here uh, with our product uh, and uh, showing uh, its possibilities. Definitely. Couldn't agree yeah. more. So let's go ahead and dive into that product. I think our audience needs to understand a bit of what Tactagon Skin is and yeah. what it does before we dig into simulated reality as a concept. So why don't you describe for our audience what is the product that you are premiering at CES this year and what is exciting about it? You know, what about it is catching people's attention? because uh, it, it's a gesture controller, okay. but it's not uh, like other gesture controllers now on the market. It's wearable and uh, it is programmable mm. through Arduino IDE, so very, very simple. And uh, what is revolutionary in, is in this product is the form factor, because you wear on your hand and it leaves your fingers completely free to move I see. in a very, very natural uh, way. Yeah. So you have four keys on the back corresponding to your fingers that you can push and you add commands to your gesture control. I see. So, uh, so it's adjustable to whatever your use might be. 
right? Like you can program different responses to each of those buttons. Correct. Um, we have also some ready-to-use sketches that you can download from our marketplace. So you simply download, install, and use. Or if you like, as I was telling, there is an Arduino SDK. You can program. You can add feature. You can improve. Mm. You can add your own application right. if you like. So it's very customizable. Yeah. Which, exactly. which I mean, makes the applications pretty limitless. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, what have been some applications for it that have really caught your eye? Or, you know, when it was being developed, it was, okay, it was intended for this. Um, so describe some of those more intended applications first. Okay, so we thought the product to be used by everyone. Okay. So applications are many. But we are now focusing, for instance, on gaming. Oh, okay. Think about uh, the, mm, the possibility to control a car in yeah. a car race. Oh, true. With a yeah. simple uh, gesture of your hand. Or uh, with glasses, uh, you can um, use virtual uh, reality or augmented reality applications there. You can connect to almost all devices which have Bluetooth, so also robots. So in robotic, you can mm, uh, control a robot because a Tatigon skin has an artificial intelligence algorithm Wonderful. on board. So mm, the algorithm um, learns from my gesture and teaches the robot to repeat my own gestures. Okay. So um, we are now uh, still working uh, to improve this algorithm. And in fact, uh, we were contacted by a German university wow. to work with us uh, in cooperation to improve this algorithm uh, for robotic, robotic applications, but in particular for a quadcopter oh, cool. uh, control. Yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely like the gaming application yeah. of it. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's probably where you might see a lot of consumer success. Yeah, yeah. Um, correct, we see it uh, in this show too. Definitely. We have a demo on our booth, uh, you have a car, we have a car race. Oh, cool. So <laughs> you can play and try our, our Tatigon scheme, how it works, yeah. and how good is responsive. Definitely. Yeah. And I just, I like this technology just kind of in a broader sense because it really does showcase this trend towards wearable technology, but smaller, more compact, uh, something that doesn't interfere a lot with just your, your natural movements, with your motion, with your vision. And it is that trend of using natural motion to control whatever it is, you know, to get that augmented, I know it's not really AR, but that um, greater than reality experience. Yeah, it's, um, it's a way to improve right. user experience and uh, to, to um, make people um, use of this kind of technology and mm, bring into reality also their great projects. Uh, think of a maker, yeah. for instance. Uh, it's not an easy task to use this kind of uh, technology because you need many, many shields, so many boards, let's say, to be put together. Yeah. And uh, uh, the final result is maybe something that is not also good to see or fashionable. Mm. Uh, what we created now is uh, something fashion yeah. that you wear, and it's also highly technological. So <laughs> I'm 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 here for fashion over function, but when it's fashion and function, <laughs> you're winning. Yeah, you're winning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, sometimes you got to sacrifice function for fashion. I mean, that's just that's just the reality of it. But I love that you were able to find that blend of function and fashion, right? Um, so let's dig into some of the more B2B 
or industry specific applications for this because I like gaming you know I like that idea of this is being used on a consumer level but I think this technology could become very useful for industries as a whole so you know thinking facility management and healthcare, care uh, maybe in in sports even so describe to me some of the industry-wide applications mm-hmm. that you could see tactagon skin being used in or that already is being used in so the first thing uh, it comes to my mind is robotics okay. because uh, you can um, wear uh, tactigon skin on the both ends, so right hand and left hand, so you have double command possibilities. I see. And so you can control uh, robotic arms and uh, add sensors also on your body to be as much as precise uh, in repeating your movements. Interesting. So this is uh, something mm, that's uh, really important uh, for robotics uh, industry, but also for safety. Yeah. Of people. Definitely. Well, I like that you brought up the machinery applications because I could see this being something, I mean, healthcare comes to mind to me because I think, um, I don't know, I, I think as this continues to develop, you could see instead of surgeons using their literal hands yeah. on a um, on a patient they're wearing something like this and they're controlling robotic arms that are even more precise or I think of large manufacturing um, let's say a company is trying to produce large-scale uh, I'm, I'm not even sure let's say cars right but they have a um, they have or they're known as a company for being very intentional with their designs or you know adding that personalized touch imagine the manufacturing you have large robotic arms making this possible but it's a human controlling them on the other side are those all potential applications that you could see tactagon skin making its way into yes yes uh, you are absolutely right wonderful that's that's really exciting stuff what would you say is the one that you're most excited to see something that hasn't totally caught on yet but is around the corner that you think tactagon skin might be used for so um, up to now uh, also um, feedback we have had during these two days of exhibition Mm -hmm. is absolutely um, gaming is the first 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 application uh, that um, i could definitely see that one having the most widespread appeal then also augmented reality and virtual reality applications yeah Yeah. but I'm, I'm glad you brought VR and AR up. I wanted to wrap this conversation up with this idea of, I know that um, Tactagon Skin is being used in conjunction with VR like goggles and augmented reality solutions, but I think this technology is bringing up a kind of a battle between the different R's, right? Between AR, SR, VR, as like which one should the industry as a whole be investing time and effort into? Um, because... I think simulated reality, what makes it so special is that you're not conflicting, like you're not constructing, excuse me, you're not putting anything over your vision, right? So you are actually interacting with a physical environment, but it's still something augmented. It's still, you know, you're using sensor technology, motion technology to make this happen. And so I guess I'd like to ask you the question, do you see simulated reality and this kind of technology beating out VR or AR applications in the future, um, do you see this becoming more useful, I guess, in, in a business perspective? I think yes, because uh, uh, the, f- the possibility to have, for instance, in augmented reality applications, the possibility to have adding info mm-hmm. at your disposal in a very short time and immediately, it's something wonderful. So uh, you can uh, um, think about, uh, for instance, 
coming back to safety. Yeah. If uh, we have to do maintenance on a plant uh, and we can, uh, first of all, preview the problem and uh, pre-decide the action to be, to be made, right. something that uh, can uh, keep people much more safer. Yeah, so yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Well, Nadia, I'd really like to thank you for coming into the studio and giving thank us you your too. insight on sort of the future of reality technology. It's exciting stuff for sure. Um, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how 2019 shapes up and how VR and SR kind of compete for the future of reality tech. It's definitely interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing how Tactagon Skin gets put to some tangible industry use. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you to you all for this kind for this experience. Very exciting. Thank absolutely. You very much. No, absolutely. Always good to have you on. We're going to take a short little break. When we come back, we're going to play you some snippets from a game I played on the floor. Actually, I was trying to source people's info on, hey, I just walked up to them with a mic, asked them, what is the weirdest or craziest piece of tech you've seen at CES so far? Some of their answers are pretty great. We'll be right back with that piece of content. Tell me, what is the craziest or weirdest piece of tech you've seen so far today? Danny Newman, Denver, Colorado. I think the Google Ride experience was probably the most unique thing uh, that we've done so far. It was, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a legit, like, carnival Disney ride. Uh, in the middle of uh, CES, which was uh, pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I think about that, I think about how do they even go about setting this up and bringing all the gear in here? Right, yeah, no, it looked like it had like a full concrete foundation and a big giant steel structure in the middle of a parking lot. That's pretty nuts. Yeah, it's pretty nuts, I love that. Austin Geyer from Denver, Colorado. I saw some poorly self-driving car accidents going on. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> there was three of them and they were just colliding, it was chaos. <laughs> you think it was intended or was it just like, whoops? I think it was whoops. <laughs> <laughs> there well, was a lot of backing up and re-ramming into each other. <laughs> maybe this is a good chance for them to 
you know, perfect the technology. It was a t trial run, right? Absolutely. I'm happy we were not in the vehicle. <laughs> right, right. I love it. My name's Mandy Ross. I'm from Brisbane, Australia. So I found myself in the baby tech section yesterday. As, as any normal person does. A hundred percent. That's just next level. But some of the devices I saw there, there was like a personal ultrasound device where you can monitor your baby. There was also a belt that you could wear while you're pregnant that would measure like the heartbeat and I guess the other vital signs of a baby. But uh, yeah, crazy. So maybe that they partner with a retailer, it becomes a fashion statement and you can walk around with your belt that also measures your baby's health. That's right. You're keeping track of your baby in real time. So we've got Ed Cantor. Well, I've been here for about three hours, and so far, probably that Sony dog. I, so tell me a bit about like what what did seem like the function for that dog was. Just what they can do with that technology. Cool. Yeah. It comes to you, shakes, it sits, it responds to being scratched. If I was stranded on a spaceship somewhere and that's all I had, I might be able to fall in love with it. Yeah, put to befriend it and <laughs> put emotion into it. Yeah. The uh, the Tom Hanks version. Uh, from of Castaway? Castaway, yeah, yeah. The high-tech version of Wilson. Yeah. I love that, I love that. Chris Shedlick, Tempe, Arizona. Well, the most interesting one for me would be the uh, LG TV that rolls up into a screen, the screen rolls up and rolls down. Just so like a, so it's like a literal screen. You kind of go pull the cord and whoop, TV goes up. No, it's automatic. It just automatically comes up and automatically goes down into a box. Could you see yourself using something like that at home? Oh, yeah. I mean, that way you can uh, be like, all right, theater time, boom, down goes the TV. Well, exactly. It's, it's like a space saver, so you wouldn't even know a TV's there until you turned it on and it came up. It's pretty cool. Uh, Andrew Monroe. I'm from Amarillo, Texas. It's either the dog robot or the ultra fly, electra fly, little hover bike thing going on. Describe the dog robot to me. It's just kind of creepy, really expensive robot that's shaped like a dog. <laughs> and what can it do? Be a dog? It can be a dog, it looks like. <laughs> Uh, it sounds like it follows you around and makes some weird dog noises and pretends to be a dog. So. Maybe the future is cute robots. I can hope, uh, and I can also hope it doesn't happen. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Hope you all enjoyed that segment. That was really a lot of fun to put together. Um, you know, it was sometimes it's tough getting people to jump behind the mic and talk about crazy <laughs> stuff they've seen at CES, but the people that did agree and did want to do it, um, you know, I love their responses. Loved, always love chatting with people from Australia, too, because that accent is just probably my favorite. It's the best. All right, so we're going to actually bring Taylor Bagley back on real quick. We're going to chat about our craziest or weirdest tech that we've seen at CES so far because, let me tell you, there's been some interesting stuff. Taylor, good to have you back on for the final time, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. I'm uh, feeling like I'm part of the, the family here. Now. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love it. So, Taylor... Tell me to wrap things up here. What is the weirdest or craziest piece of tech that you saw at CES? Yeah, so uh, I mean, it's hard to pick, but yeah. uh, one of the coolest things that I think I saw, or at least something that I uh, felt like I would definitely want to have, is, uh, and it was mentioned before here, <laughs> was that Samsung roll-up TV. Um, it's something that you know, even just describing it now is hard to kind of comprehend. But I mean, it, it is a literal scrolling piece of material that pulls up right out of a box and it's you know when, when the tv's down it's it this isn't just your average retractable tv right this screen literally rolls into itself with no creases and exactly. no damage to the exactly to the with pitch, a, yeah. uh, an amazing picture quality on it so you know hats off to the guys at samsung over there and you know their team and being able to put out something that is uh um you know just truly kind of you know out of the the realm of what you think is is possible with some of that uh you know digital 
display technology. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, what my craziest or weirdest piece of tech was, it's also hard to pinpoint, but I'm probably just going to have to go back to that ping pong playing robot. I mean, it was great. So cool. It's so cool. Um, And just like a very strange application for, okay, they developed a robot that plays ping pong, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it -hmm. seems like why would you invest time and money into something like that? But what's cool is when they explained the application that this is just an example, like a fun example, Mm -hmm. of how this tech is actually being used for machine learning, for, um, you know, more precise uh, machinery. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was was really cool to see that at Omeron. I mean, I could probably go on for days about the cool tech we saw here, but Mm -hmm. uh, it's never enough. We're going to have to come back next year for more. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, even just the, the entire week of CES is almost not enough. You know, there's uh, so much to be seen here. This is an amazing show with the best and brightest people in the world uh, showcasing the coolest and, uh, you know, most advanced technology that we have. So, um, you know, what more could you ask for? Definitely. Exactly. All right. Well, Taylor, thanks again for giving your insight on the podcast. Love chatting with you. Anytime. All right. So we're going to go ahead and take another quick two or three minute break, uh, but we're going to get our final feature settled in here. We're going to be chatting with someone from Flex Fuel, so bringing it back to transportation technology, and we're going to be looking more at technology that is going to power freight operations, or really it's not aimed for that B2B market, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about how this kind of technology can affect the industry as a whole, shipping, um, and more of that transit logistical side of business operations. So we're going to go ahead and take that quick break. We'll come right back with our final feature for MarketScale Live at CES.
right. We're back for our final feature on our Market Scale Live podcast at CES. And for our last feature, we're bringing things back to transportation technology and the connected cars of the future. And really even more so than our last feature, we're really looking at the B2B applications and how these offerings are really seeming transformative within the industry. So we're going to be chatting with Jerome Lubert from Flex Fuel Energy Development. He's the director of business development for Flex Fuel. And we're really going to get a better idea of how their technology is helping collect more data from engines. It's helping run cleaner engines, more high-performing engines, and looking at how this tech is not just affecting the consumer market, but transportation as a whole. How can this be used during shipment operations and, uh, yeah, really transform that logistical side of any business. So, Jerome, great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm very good. Wonderful. So, we were chatting before when the mics weren't rolling, but you flew in from France? Yes, from, yes. from, from Paris. So, nine-hour time difference. It's a bit How, of difference. Yeah. <laughs> what was the adjustment like? Settling um, in. Pretty odd. Pretty, pretty odd. Pretty rich. The, fir the first day was pretty odd. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But you've been here now for a while. Is this your first year at CES? No, it's my third time in CES. Great. So tell me a bit about your experience so far. Um, what has set this year apart from your previous years that you've been here? Um, first of all, this is my first year for FlexFuel. Um, oh, great. Before I was a visitor and we were not uh, exhibiting. Oh, so I see. So, so it really is a new experience. Yes, yeah. it's a new experience as an exhibitor. And um, the experience is absolutely uh, crazy because you can see technologies from around the world, from the big players, of course, but yep. also from small uh, companies, as you may saw, the, the French tech in France yeah. is uh, pretty impressive with uh, almost 500 companies here. So yeah. it's great to be part of that. Definitely. No, I mean, I there was an after event yesterday that I really wanted to go to, but tickets were sold out for. That was actually all about um, how the southern region of France is transforming um, the software and technology industry yeah. and are really becoming big players. I actually would like to know what about France is making it such a a big worldwide player for emerging technologies is there just more investment from the government is there just a lot of bright minds there what is uh, helping push that area forward i think this is two things two different things there is first it's the context uh, we have less and less industry in europe oh, okay. so we have to develop uh, some new things startups is a uh, is a way to do to do that of Definitely. course there is all the other technologies and of course uh, there is the other side uh, that government is pushing it so a french tech that you can see in uh, in, uh, in the cs in uh, eureka park is uh, fully supported by the government and the regions so that's why there is so many uh, so many companies and that expansion here yeah that's i mean it's exciting to be from that area and to be able to exhibit from it that is. area we were in that area uh, so we didn't exhibit it in cs but we were in the area uh, we won actually a few awards uh, from not the french tech but uh, one of their uh, one of their um, awards, which is named uh, Clean Tech Open oh, awesome. in, U in Europe, and uh, actually they are going also to uh, to USA. So we were part of this kind of startup before, and now we are more established and we are improving our products. That's why we needed to to be in CES to launch and present our technologies. Let's say to the the world yeah. and to the technologies were yes right and then also be around other innovative technologies learn a little bit you know collaborate make those connections i mean there's no better place to be for something like that than ces exactly yeah so let's dive into flex fuels offerings as a whole so what i really want to chat about is the technology you're offering that is helping run cleaner engines uh, more exactly. efficient engines 
and might transform not just the consumer, but again, the commercial side of the transportation okay. industry. So describe what product you are really most passionate about and that you're showcasing at CES this year, and what is making it so important as a step forward within transportation. So the first thing to say about our products is we provide a solution. We developed it. Uh, we developed a, a technology that allows you to deduct by two the pollution of your car without changing it, without improving it, just by cleaning it. So that's something very important because if you don't have to change the, the car, if you don't have to pay a lot of different uh, expenses to improve it, uh, if you just have to clean it, this is a cheap service. Yeah. Uh, people are going to do it because if it's a cheap service and if it provides benefits, it's uh, easier to, to, to access. Right. So our service is to clean engines thanks to hydrogen technology. So we have a machine that produces hydrogen and that introduce hydrogen into the engine. Okay. Thanks to that hydrogen, the combustion is much better, so there is way more, part way less particles inside, and we are creating a natural solvent after the combustion that eliminates all the carbon waste inside the engines, which is the worst cause uh, of pollution because the more carbon waste there is inside, the more pollution you have at the exhaust. Gotcha. So, this idea of introducing hydrogen into the combustion process and into you know it's it's there at the beginning and at the end of the engine's lifespan yeah. is this something that is new like this idea of introducing hydrogen or has this been around for a while we've been working on uh, hydrogen technology since 2008 in fact 2008 uh, yes 2008 okay. so we've been in the industry side in fact at the beginning so we were developing uh, hydrogen generators that we put uh, as a fixed system inside the engines so um, for, for example, for shi fishing ships, for uh, generators, for trains, diesel trains, etc. So the target was to lower uh, the fuel consumption. So we got very impressive results, uh, something like 15 minus 15% of fuel consumption from the industrial side. So hmm. that was pretty, pretty nice. But the, w the best thing that we learned about that is during the maintenance, when they were opening the engines, we saw that the engines were really, really clean. Yeah. So we understood that the technology was improving the fuel consumption, but not by the hydrogen itself, by the cleaning of the engine. So getting the engine back to the original performance is already something big compared uh, to a dirty engine Yeah. To, to lower the emission and save fuel. Definitely. So I think maybe a counterpoint to technology like this would be um, it is expensive to put into work and to have it be a ubiquitous part of engines like just across the board. What would be your response to that? Is this kind of technology maybe more um, costly up front, but then you know you see the returns later? Or is it actually something that is rather affordable? This is a very fast return on investment, actually, because mm. the magic of the technology is that we are only using distilled water with the machine. So... We have in Europe 1,300 1, point of service, and these garage or service center for automotive have one machine, they are renting it, and the only thing that they have to use is distilled water, which is very cheap. Okay. So they can propose a service which is also uh, affordable, uh, around 80 to $100 for one car, and the return on investment is that if you clean your engine, the studies that we did and the studies that are done by the automotive industry in France is with a clean engine, you will get between $100 to $200 a year of feedback. So hmm. you'll get a very quick return on investment. 
and of course you will uh, avoid any problems of failure uh, on your engine etc right yeah i'm glad you brought up that sort of maintenance side of things because i did want to break down all of the beneficial applications of something like this before we wrap things up with looking at how this affects b2b transportation in general so the preventative maintenance side of it i think is very important because like health there's something you mentioned in um, a pre-interview survey you filled out like health it's cheaper in the long run to do preventive preventative maintenance than waiting until you know you're, you're 70 and it's like i haven't worked out my entire life which that might be my future. I might need to hit the gym up a little more. But, yeah, tell us, uh, tell us a bit about the preventative maintenance side of why this technology is so important. The, the preventative side is a, is a way to think, the mindset side. That's the problem is uh, people normally wait to have the problem to try to cure the problem. So that's why the, the market was, uh, at the beginning, made by the creative uh, side. But, as you said, preventative is the one we push yeah. because this, this is the one we believe in. Uh, so, of course, uh, you don't feel that there is problems of pollution in your car. You don't smell it. You don't feel it because the, the decrease of the performance is so slow right. kilometers after kilometers. So that's why uh, people doesn't do nothing. But look at them when they have a chimney or something like this. Right. They clean the chimney every year. Why? Because they know that they have to do it. Right. There's it's soot there and eventually exactly. it's going to... Same for a car. Yeah. You change your oil every 15,000 miles, something mm-hmm. like this. They do, do, do they feel something? No. Yeah. They have to do it because this is written in the manual. So we have to educate people to see that they have to clean their engines right. to get some benefits from it, fuel savings, preventive, ma- preventive ma- maintenance, yeah. and also for the planet, for the pollution. Right. Yes, thank you for bringing that up too because I think the ecological side of it could be a strong selling point to entice people yeah. to want a product like this because I think we're in a relatively... I wouldn't say new, but more passionate social revolution around seeing people wanting to contribute in any way possible to curbing global emissions, um, to curbing like plastic waste. I know like hashtag team no straw, right? People are wanting to not use straws anymore in their um, fast food drinks, just like little things like that. And this might be not quite as little, actually a rather large thing that you can do to curb global emissions just as a, an individual, um, are you seeing that social push encourage people to want to use technology like this? Definitely in large companies in France or even in uh, state-owned companies, yeah. uh, there is uh, really a big care about uh, the pollution and the brand image of your company. Uh, do you clean preventatively your, your cars? Do you care about the emissions? And not only CO2, you know, everybody talking about CO2, but we need CO2 to live. Yep. Uh, we are talking about very harmful gases like NOx, HC, CO, that are emitted by the cars. So we are reducing all these gas uh, drastically. So that's uh, really a good point for a company first to do it in terms of economical side, but right. also in terms of communication to say that, we are cleaning our engines. We are making sure that our cars n- are not polluting too much. Right. And to kind of wrap up the conversation, all of this has been very you know, consumer-focused, and I think that passionate, ecologically conscious individual or someone who understands the workings of their vehicle, they're going to want to maintain it, right? They're going to want to make sure the engine is running. They're going to want to cut back on emissions any way they can. But I think this technology can have very... Um, large impacts on just the transportation industry as a whole. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. business applications like using this technology 
for their entire shipment operations. You know, imagine in, uh, imagine partnering with a company like um, like UPS, right, yeah. or uh, some other transit, co- uh, even Amazon and their services. This kind of tech that is not only ecologically friendly, but is going to help make their vehicles run more smoothly. Are you seeing um, a lot of these applications within that B2B space? There, there is a lot of uh, benefits for companies like this. First of all, uh, there is the reliability of the process. When you have hundreds, thousands of cars on the road, Mm -hmm. only one car failing, having a failure on the highway or something like that is immobilizing your car, but it's worse that you are losing your day, which is the most expensive thing because when you are losing your day, you have your driver. And what is the most expensive thing in your business? It's the labor. So first of all, if you can avoid that problem, that's perfect. Second thing is you can monitor with our machine the before and the after of the engine clogging. So you can make sure that after the treatment, you have an estimation of the clogging in into the engine. So you can monitor your different cars. You can adapt the different models to the different labor. If you have cars that do only motorway, uh, that a specific kind of car that you have to use. If there is some that only in city driving, you can adapt also, and you can make sure that you are improving uh, your, your, your efficiency. And there is also the side of the fuel saving, of course. Uh, we are not making magic. We right. are bringing back the machine, the, the, the car, to its original performance. You would be amazed to see the derivation of the performance and the fuel efficiency, something like 10,000 miles after wow. uh, putting the car on the market. So uh, this is something that people have to learn, again, to be educated and to invest in such kind of process and monitor and follow the different cars and the different fleets. Yeah, well, the monitoring side of it is something that I think is just as important because with technology like this that is is solving very specific issues, you need to be able to apply it in specific ways. And I think it, it goes along with this trend of industries as a whole are investing time, energy, money into IoT solutions, into connected data, and then having people that can analyze that data and move forward and make actionable decisions off of that data. I mean, I could see revenue or cost savings on a large scale with the kind of data that you can collect from this kind of high-carbon tech. Exactly. The the, the big uh, new technology that we bring with this brand new product, the iCarbon Connect, mm-hmm. compared to the previous one, which was the EGR Pilot, which was... Uh, let's say um, uh, a manual type of the machine. Uh, This is because we are bringing a new app and this app is able to uh, collect data, not only from the human side because they are under the the application is collecting your name, your surname, Mm -hmm. uh, your details, and also your type of driving, but it's also collecting some data on your car. So we are connecting the car through the OBD Hmm. and we are first collecting the different uh, default codes. And after that, we are making some diagnosis by moving the parts into the car to make sure that the efficiency, for example, of of an EGR valve or turbo is good. So this is basically an axis from zero to 100%. We are measuring it. And we are, after that, comparing and uh, using our algorithm to compare all this information and to estimate the clogging, s- the clogging uh, state of the car. Right. After that, our system is also able to calculate, uh, thanks to the algorithm, the specific treatment that your car is needing. After the treatment, we do a run a drive test to make sure that we evacuate all the carbon waste inside. Mm-hmm. And right after this uh, drive test, we do a second test to compare from the first one. 
and to give a report dedicated on the car. Okay. So, I mean, that, and that's amazing, seeing that real-time data, being able to make actionable decisions off of that is crucial, and I can see that being really impactful in those B2B markets. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, uh, we are taking, let's say, the data, the automotive data from the other side. Right. Uh, we are not uh, putting information in. Uh, we are collecting data, right. specific data about the clogging and the pollution inside, which is something pretty uh, important in the market. Uh, just look about uh, you want to sell your car right you want to and uh, you want to I want to buy your car right. I just want to check your car right and you can give me a report saying that one month ago you just did a big testing on your car that the pollution is, is low right the maintenance was has been done mm -hmm. and uh, the clogging uh, the clogging of the engine was very low it means that the parts the car parts right. which are sensitive and very expensive are pretty reliable in your car so I would prefer to buy your car compared to another one. Right. And then, I mean, th think of the potential just ubiquitous regulation that technology like this could impose. Um, I mean, imagine imagine tech like this being used on a more federal level that if your car doesn't meet certain requirements based yeah. on the data collected, then, you know, your car is no longer in commission. You can't be driving. It's illegal to drive. So I feel like the applications for this are pretty endless and it's exciting to see where flex fuel might go in the future. Exactly. Yeah. That's why we, we want to uh, be in U.S. market uh, pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jerome, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and giving us your insight on flex fuel and how it's potentially transforming the transportation industry as a whole. I'm looking forward to seeing how 2019 shapes up for flex fuel. We'll definitely get you back on the podcast for an update. Thank you very cool. much. Cool. All right, Jerome, thank you. And that's it for MarketScale Live at CES. I'd like to thank everyone who helped make this possible. Taylor Bagley, obviously, gave his beautiful voice on the other side of the mic and has been running the operations on the back end of this. He's been doing a fabulous job. Thank you, Taylor. Also want to shout out Cam for her Cam's Corner and all the work she did prepping up the social game for this. And really making this run successfully and obviously got to thank all our guests so again patrick santucci product pr manager for dg or excuse me dji we also had transitel on the podcast we spoke with philippe vigneault head of business development for transitel we also got to speak to next industries nadia giuliani the coo and they're learning a little bit more about their product tactagon skin and finally again jerome with flex fuel so i'd like to thank everyone for their time Hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'll be bringing more live content to you ASAP. But till then, I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Thank you for listening to MarketScale live at CES. Till next time.